We are working our way through the entire book of Revelation presently. And this morning we find ourselves in chapter 6, in those three verses that I just read for you. Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. Now briefly, by way of review, uh, for those of you who may not have heard the last few messages, or even if you have, it may have gone clear from your mind by now. Remember that in chapter 5 there was a scroll in heaven which we know from what follows in chapters 6 and 7, what transpires as the scroll is opened. We know that this scroll that we're introduced to in chapter 5 contains the interventions of God in this world, both in terms of judgment and redemption. If this scroll is not opened, then earth will be earth and heaven will be heaven. But what God has written in the scroll in terms of His intervention on earth, those judgments and those redemptions, redemptive actions that He has decreed to take place, in the imagery of the vision, it will never actually take place on earth. And earth will just be separate from heaven. And there will be no intervention of heaven on earth unless there is a mediator found who can open the scroll for in the imagery of revelation chapter 5 god requires a mediator to open to cause to take place on earth what he has written in that scroll it is for this reason that john weeps in revelation 5 when no one is found to open the scroll. Because if no one can be found, then we're just going to plod along in this cycle of life and suffering and death with no intervention from heaven. And yet, the Lion of Judah comes forth, the Lamb who is worthy, and He is bringing God's interventions in this world to pass in the imagery of Revelation. He is the person through whom God's judgmental and redemptive purposes shall come to pass. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Him. Everything that God has determined to do with respect to judging and saving will happen in and through the person of Christ Jesus. And so this great coming forth of the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who is worthy, stops John's tears. And now in Revelation 6, Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who is worthy, is in the process of opening that scroll. And as the scroll is opened, what God has written in it comes to pass on the earth. This is what is going on in Revelation chapter 6. So the imagery of chapter 6 is Jesus opening the seven seals of the scroll, which represent the gradual unfolding and accomplishment of what God has decreed to come to pass in terms of salvation and judgment. This is big picture what's going on here. Now the first four seals, which we've looked at over the last two weeks, contain four riders on horses, which show us that war and poverty and famine 
and economic hardship and pestilence and death will be part and parcel of life here and now. But that also, in the midst of it all, and through it all, and in spite of it all, Jesus rides forth conquering and to conquer. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. And He will build His church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what we've seen in Revelation 6 so far. But today, in verses 9 to 11 of Revelation 6, we see that just as Christians will not be exempt from the calamities common to mankind, namely things like war, famine, pestilence, death, we have to undergo it just as unbelievers have to undergo it. Just as Christians will not be exempt from the calamities common to all mankind, Christians will also additionally have our own particular form of suffering. Namely, persecution. In addition to being subject to the calamities of the second and third and fourth seals, Christians will also be subject to the suffering of the fifth seal, which is what we're looking at today. Persecution. Revelation 6, 9-11 on the fifth seal is our text for this morning. We will see three things about persecution this morning, after which I'll make a few applications. But before we even get to that, please allow me to give you from our passage a definition of persecution. So here's our outline for this morning. First, a definition of persecution. Second, three things about persecution. Thirdly, a few applications. Alright, so let's jump in first with a definition of persecution. And look at verse 9. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. This is the key phrase to understanding what persecution is. For the word of God. And for the witness they had borne. Elsewhere in Scripture, we find parallel statements. Jesus says in Mark 8:35, for example, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel. Or in Acts 5:41, we read of those who, quote, were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Specifically, in Revelation 6, 9-11, we are reading about the most extreme form of persecution, which is martyrdom, or being killed, for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. But what is true in the most extreme case of persecution, martyrdom, is true in the case of lesser persecutions also. Persecution is mistreatment by others. Why? Why? For the word of God and for the witness you bear. Or as Jesus puts it, for his sake and for the gospel. Or as we read elsewhere, for the name. These are roughly synonymous phrases. Not all suffering is persecution. 
Not all suffering, even for legitimate causes, is persecution. Persecution is that suffering which other people intentionally inflict upon you. Why? For the Word of God and for the witness that you bear. Persecution is not necessarily all the suffering that you undergo, even if you are a Christian, and even if you happen to be preaching the gospel or worshiping at the time when it occurs. Let me explain. If I'm on an international flight and I get up to stretch my legs or use the bathroom or whatever, and I'm at the front of the plane and I happen to see that the cockpit was accidentally left ajar. And I take the opportunity to go in to evangelize the pilot and the co-pilot. After all, they are presumably lost souls who need Jesus. And so here I am with my loving Christian heart. My motivations are pure, right? I love Jesus. I love lost souls. Well, tell the lost souls about Jesus. So into the cockpit I go to preach the gospel. Well, if I do this, I will likely be forcibly removed. And depending on the flight and the provisions they've made, I may be tased by an onboard security officer. Or I may be assaulted by other passengers who are on edge and understandably cautious after 9-11. And it is fairly likely that I will be arrested and face charges upon landing wherever the destination of the flight is. Now, if I was talking about Jesus at the time that I was forcibly removed and tased and assaulted and arrested, can I claim that I was persecuted for preaching the gospel? No. Because that was not the crime, so to speak, for which I was held to account. The preaching of the gospel was incidental to the whole situation. It wouldn't have mattered what I was doing in the cockpit. I could have been tap dancing, I could have been performing magic tricks with a deck of cards, or I could have been evangelizing. In in any of those cases, it would have been the same outcome. Because what I am being arrested for and tased for and assaulted for, etc., etc., is entering the cockpit. Period. The crime was unlawfully entering an area from which ordinary passengers are prohibited. So far, no controversy, right? Alright, now let me stir the pot a little bit. Alright? Let's say, for example, that there is a public health order during a global pandemic. And the public health order prohibits assemblies of a certain size. And a pastor decides to open his church and have a worship service as usual. Say, for example, that he's arrested and put in jail for 35 days, charged with, quote, refusing to adhere to public health act rules around social distancing and capacity limits, end quote. Can we claim that he was persecuted for preaching the gospel? Or should others make that claim about him? Think carefully about that one. Logic tells us that it's the same 
in terms of the judgment that we ought to render as the previous case. As was the case in my airplane scenario, it was not preaching the gospel, which was the crime, so to speak, for which he was held to account. The preaching of the gospel was incidental to the whole situation. Again, he could have been tap dancing, he could have been doing magic tricks with a deck of cards, but if he was doing it in a crowd of that size, contra public health orders, he also likewise would have been arrested and charged as he was. The crime was operating in non-compliance with a public health order. Now for our purposes this morning, I'm not intending to convey a position on whether what he did was wrong or right, whether what the government did was wrong or right, that's, that's actually neither here nor there for our purposes this morning. There may be a time, let's say that, let's say that you are a medical doctor and you get up to stretch your legs on an airplane and not only is the cockpit door left ajar but it's actually wide open and the pilot's in there having a medical emergency. And you think that you can rush in and help him. But as you rush in to help him, you realize that he is going to die. And you share the gospel with him. And lo and behold, reason does not prevail. And you're charged anyway with entering the cockpit, even though there should be extenuating circumstances. Would you say that you did the right thing? Probably yes. Probably yes. But you would still never say that that was a case of persecution for preaching the gospel. Right? So we just need to think clearly. Not saying yay or nay on the particular issue. What I am saying though, and let me be clear about this. What I am saying is that it was not persecution. Because again, persecution is mistreatment by others. Why? For the sake of the name. For Jesus' sake and the gospel. For the word of God and the witness you bear. Persecution is not necessarily all the suffering that you undergo. Even if you are a Christian. And even if you happen to be preaching the gospel or worshipping at the time that that suffering occurs. Being arrested for non-compliance with a public health order incumbent upon all citizens of a particular constituency irrespective of their religious affiliation or practices, is therefore not persecution, even if you happen to be preaching the gospel at the time. Now, to the contrary, imagine a hypothetical scenario, which has played out many times in history, where a pastor is warned not to preach these seditious doctrines, not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Right? Right? Now are we dealing with mistreatment for the sake of the name? Now are we dealing with mistreatment on account of the word of God and the witness you bear? Yes. When those are the circumstances, then yes, that's exactly, exactly what persecution is. So for the third time, let me repeat myself so we're all abundantly clear. Persecution is not necessarily all the suffering you undergo, even if you're a Christian, and even if you happen to be preaching the gospel or worshiping at the time. Persecution is mistreatment by others for the sake of the name. For Jesus' sake and for the gospel. For the word of God. And for the witness you bear.
We see this in Revelation 6 and verse 9, a working definition of what persecution is. Now, that's our first point. Now, second point, three things about persecution. The first is this, there will be persecution. There will be persecution. We endure already some forms of persecution here in the West. And we are increasingly experiencing more. If things stay on the same trajectory, we will experience more and more persecution until martyrdom becomes a common occurrence here. Under the pretense of tolerance and protection of the vulnerable. We will find that we are increasingly boxed out of certain professions which will become incompatible with the Christian conscience. For example, medical issues like abortion and euthanasia have long been conscience issues in Canada for our healthcare workers to navigate there. And now we are seeing the LGBTQ plus agenda creating more and more conscience issues for believers in the medical world. It may be at some point that going into that field becomes difficult or impossible for a Christian in this area of the world. We may likewise find it difficult or impossible at some point to be police officers or politicians or possibly even entrepreneurs because we will not have the favor that we need to get the permissions that we need and the approvals that we need to carry out and apply our trade. And as Joel Beakey notes, it has often been the case in church history that Christians have been forced to take the most menial jobs. This is a form of persecution. And if things progress, our beliefs will become eventually criminalized hate speech, which is already technically on the books in Canada, by the way. It's not futuristic, uh, doomsday imaginations running wild. If all, everything I believe and say was put before the most vehement searchers out of that kind of thing, you would find that my orthodox, historic Christian beliefs include what Canada now deems to be hate speech. Eventually, it's just a matter of time until someone is put in jail in Canada, in the U.S., here, for such hate speech, which will be nothing more than historic, orthodox Christian beliefs. We will be deemed dangerous to society and our beliefs will be, become just grounds for criminal prosecution, conviction, and even eventually execution. Now some may balk at such a prognosis of our trajectory. Come on, man. This is the West. But the reality is that what the West has been over this last period of time is anomalous in world history. And that history is full of examples of just such persecution by otherwise harmless Christians. 
simply on the basis of our beliefs. And even now, right now, the world is chock full of such persecution. Citing a reputable source, Beaky says, more Christians have been martyred for their faith in the past century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. He expands, millions who profess the name of Christ around the world meet secretly for worship in their homes because they are oppressed by hostile governments. If their allegiance to Christ is discovered, their homes are attacked and burned. The women and children are sold into slavery. Husbands and wives, parents and children have their throats slit in front of each other for no other reason than refusing to deny the name of Christ. Hundreds of thousands are brutally tortured and brainwashed in an effort to force them to recant their faith. They spend years in solitary prison cells and hard labor camps. They fear daily for their lives. End quote. Listen, this stuff is really going on right now. I don't know if, if any of you have ever seen The Hunger Games, but the people in District 1 in that uh, movie, like fictional world, or whatever, are just oblivious to what's going on in the other eight or nine districts, however many there are. And there is so much suffering in these other districts, but there is opulence and comfort and ease and entertainment in District 1 that absolutely blinds and numbs them to what's going on in the rest of the world. Listen, the world is a rough place for Christians right now. This world that we live in. If you think that it could never happen in the West, that is simply naive. As I said, what has been happening in the West in the most recent period that we have been living in with the ascendancy of Christianity as sort of a uh, ascendant sociological, ideological construct, that period is coming to an end if it has not ended already. And secularism is rising and mark my words, if we stay on the same trajectory, 100%, what has been happening and is happening around the world throughout history will happen here. So my first point, I trust you're all very encouraged by now, <laughs> is that there will be persecution. There will be persecution. Therefore, we should not be shocked when it happens. Jesus taught before he left that you're going to suffer, that there's going to be persecution. And he said, you know what, I'm telling you this so that when it happens, you're not shocked. So that you don't fall away thinking something is wrong. When persecution comes, everything is going according to plan. God has written in his scroll, as we see from the opening of the fifth seal, that there will be, there will be, a certain amount of Christians whose blood is spilled on account of the Word of God and for the witness they bear. There will be persecution. But that leads us very naturally to our second point, or our second sub-point, which is there will be an end to persecution. Look at verse 11. In response to the question, How long, O Lord? The martyrs are told to rest a while. How long? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. 
who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Just as God's plan includes and allows for the persecution of His people, it is a definite and limited amount of persecution according to God's decree, which will one day reach its end. It's as if God is counting until the number that He has decided upon is reached. And then He says, enough. How long, O Lord? That's how long. Until God's counting reaches the number that He has intended. And then He says, enough. We will not be mistreated on account of the Word of God and the witness that we bear forever. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. One day we will be relieved of this suffering, and justice will be done, and vengeance rendered. Which leads us very naturally to our third subpoint. The third thing about persecution, which is this. There will be judgment and vengeance on account of persecution. Beaky says of the martyr's cry in Revelation 6.10, They do not cry out for revenge. Rather, they pray for the vindication of God's holy name as judge of the earth. Well, of course, I don't dispute that part of what they are crying out for is the vindication of God's holy name. I disagree with Beaky here that they do not cry out for revenge. I know Beaky prefers the King James Version, the manuscript tradition that it's based upon. But the English words used in both the King James Version and the ESV, which we tend to use here, are the same. Look at your Bibles. Judge and avenge. Judge and avenge. The martyrs are asking that justice be done. And that God vindicate Himself as just judge. And not let the evildoers get away with it. So to speak. And this is in keeping with Psalms like Psalm 94, which BG points us back towards. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up to judge the earth. Repay the proud what they deserve. They say the Lord does not see, and the God of Jacob does not perceive. There is this cry Lord, vindicate your name. Vindicate your name. Show them that you are just. Show them that there is someone in the judge's seat who will render a judge just verdict. Don't let them just think that this is a lawless world where there is no reckoning. Vindicate yourself as just judge, Lord. Yes, that is part and parcel of what the martyrs in Revelation 6 are asking for. How long till you judge? Yes, that is admittedly part of what they are asking for. But they are also, the martyrs in Revelation 6, are also obeying Romans 12 and verse 19, which says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Says the Lord. The very assumption of this verse is that retributive justice is good and right and natural to seek, but that it is simply not your place to do it, but the Lord's. I read you that lengthy quote from Beaky earlier, just talking about the horrors that Christians experience in other parts of the world. Imagine if you had the throats of your children slit before your very own eyes. How long, oh Lord, till you avenge? How long until you make that right? How long until there is retributive justice? What if you saw your daughter or your wife raped? How long, oh Lord, break the teeth of the wicked? In the words of the psalmist, how long, oh Lord? Look, it's not wrong. It's not wrong to want vengeance. It's not wrong to want retributive justice. It's not wrong to cry out an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. God has made this a just world where there are just desserts, where there is retribution for wrongs that are committed. And it's not wrong to want that, to seek that, to long for that, to look for that, to need that. It's not wrong to want blood to be avenged. And the saints in heaven perfected. They don't say, let, let me get down there and deal with this. They don't go grab the baseball bat or the shotgun out of the closet and go on a mission to exact their own retribution and their own revenge. But the saints in heaven perfected. They do not give up their legitimate desire. How long, O oh Lord, till you avenge our blood? They take that longing, they take that desire where it belongs. To God. To the just judge. And they say, O oh Lord, vindicate your name. These people say the Lord does not see. Show them that there is a just judge. Yes, vindicate your name. How long till you judge? How long till you show them that this is a moral universe and that you are God and that you will do what's right? How long till you judge? But there are two things that they ask for. How long till you judge? And how long till you avenge our blood? These saints in heaven are crying out for what God has promised to give. Beaky says wrongly, I believe, there is no thirst for revenge in heaven. But God Himself has told us that He intends to avenge His people. It is not wrong between this day and the day when that vengeance is meted out. It is not wrong to long for that, to look for that. The firmest believer of God's promises will, in fact, long for that day until it comes, knowing that He who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. We're seeking to be holier than God to pretend that a thirst for revenge is unbefitting of the saints when God Himself has promised us vengeance. 
better to take this verse at face value. The martyred saints are indeed asking God to vindicate himself, as per Psalm 94 and other scriptures, but they are also asking God to avenge their blood. And it is, in fact, that readiness to turn vengeance over to the Lord, knowing full well that He will do it, which enables us to psychologically cope with horrific abuses and trauma and persecution in the meantime, in the here and now, without taking vengeance ourselves. So, so the three things about persecution. There will be persecution, but it will come to an end. And God will judge and avenge on account of it. With those things in mind, allow me to make some applications. The first is what Revelation tells us over and over again. Overcome. Overcome. Conquer. Revelation 2, verses 10 and 11, in the context of the letter to the church in Smyrna, says this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, in that section, we're told that being faithful unto death is conquering. In other words, what, what this is then, this is, a, this is a battle in which the winner is whoever is standing at the end. As it goes back and forth, the last one standing, that's the one who conquers. You think, how could I be faithful to death and still be, have said to conquer? Well, here's how it goes. Death is not the end. So Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Which means, you kill me, but in a very real sense, I'm still standing. And as John Donne, the poet, put it so long ago, even death will die. So after death has been knocked out, after Satan and his hordes have been defeated and are down, look, I'm still standing. So guess what? I conquered. In the face of what you are about to suffer, the tribulation, the imprisonment, the martyrdom. Believe that he who believes in Jesus, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And stand firm in it, stand firm through it, and stand firm after it. Stand firm on the other side of death. Stand tall, stand, remain standing. Through all of that, that's what conquering is. That's what overcoming looks like with respect to persecution. Don't fall. And I'm not talking about don't die. I'm talking about hold fast to Jesus so that death is not the end. So that you're still standing when you get to the other side. That's what conquering looks like. That's what overcoming looks like.
not about beating up your foes. We just talked about vengeance is whose? God's. So it doesn't mean that you're out here grabbing weapons and going to war, trying to win some earthly battle. That's not what I'm talking about, about conquering. I'm talking about keep fighting. Hang in there in that battle. Stand. Like we, me and my boys just finished watching the first four Rocky Balboa movies. If any of you have seen those, boy, Rocky takes a beating, man. That guy, that guy needs to learn to keep his gloves up and his chin down. But Rocky just gets absolutely battered. But what does Rocky never do? Rocky never quits. And at the end of it all, when both guys have been battered and bruised, Rocky is always left standing, right? This is a parable of the Christian. Look, you're going to take some shots. You're going to be thrown in prison. You're going to be persecuted. Some of you are even going to be killed. But when all is said and done, the Christians are still standing. Overcome. Persevere. Even death will die, but you will not. The one who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.11. Revelation 12, also verse 11, says something very similar just to undergird this point. Talks about the brethren who have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even to death. They love not their lives even to death, which means they died. But in dying, they conquered. And how did they conquer? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They went down fighting still clinging to Jesus, still talking about Jesus, still testifying of Jesus, believing that he who believes in Jesus, even though he dies, yet shall he live. And they went down like that. And in going down like that, they didn't really go down, did they? Still standing. They conquered. So what did Jesus tell us to be up to until the end of our lives? What did he tell us to do? Matthew chapter 28 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look, keep at that. Keep doing that. Keep fighting, keep walking, keep journeying, keep persevering, keep going, keep swinging, keep taking it on the chin. Let them throw you in prison, let them cut off your head. Come hell or high water. Look, what I'm going to be up to till I die? Making disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And if they kill me, well, it doesn't matter, the second death won't hurt me. He who believes in Jesus, even though he dies, yet shall he live. So when death is down on the mat, I'll still be standing. This is what we're to be up to. This is what we're to be doing. There is persecution, but it will end. God will judge and God will avenge. In the meantime, overcome. Conquer. That's the first point of application. Secondly, lament. 
Listen, we don't have to be unmoved and unaffected by the persecutions that we undergo. Some people experience horrific, terrible things. They ought to, as I just said, they ought to overcome. They ought to conquer through it. Be standing on the other side, still hanging on to Jesus. But it doesn't mean that they can't lament and cry out, How long, O Lord? doesn't mean that they can't acknowledge that this is difficult. And in between the persecution that they have suffered and the day when God renders justice and vengeance, it doesn't mean that there will be no unease, dis-ease in between point A and point B. The martyrs here show us they feel uncomfortable between point A and point B. They've suffered, and God hasn't yet made everything right. So they lament. How long, O oh Lord? It's okay. It's, it's all right. You don't have to be callous. You don't have to be stoic. You don't have to be unmoved by the persecutions that you go through. Overcome through it, yes. Conquer through it, yes. But feel free to cry out, How long, O oh Lord? It's the second point of application. Because some people will tell you, why are you crying? Point them to Revelation 6 and say, look at even the saints in heaven. How long, O Lord? That's where I'm at right now. Thirdly, lean on God. His sustenance is implied. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. How do we overcome? How do we conquer? It's not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. As we, we have the strength latent within us. We lean hard into God. Oh Lord, help me overcome. Because Jesus, the Lion of Judah, has triumphed. Right? Because He is the rider on the white horse going out conquering and to conquer. Because of His conquering, we can conquer. We lean into Him. We look... To Him, our conquering King, for sustenance, for help, for aid. We lean on Him for sustenance. And we lean on Him also for, as I say, justice and vengeance. It's going to be psychologically difficult to overcome. It's going to be psychologically difficult to conquer. Especially if things intensify. Some of y'all are already struggling. If you invite a coworker to church and they look at you funny. Alright? Look, if they stab you, it's gonna be worse. Alright? As things intensify, it's gonna get more and more difficult psychologically to go through it all, to overcome, to conquer, to persevere. You're going to need to lean hard on God for the sustenance to go through it. And you're going to need to embrace the categories that the Bible gives us of looking to God not only for justice in terms of Him vindicating His own justice as the just judge and as the just ruler, but you're going to need to embrace the biblical category of saying, hey, if that person never turns to Christ and has that sin covered by His blood, 
God will give me revenge. God will avenge what he's done to me. God will avenge what he's done to my family. You're going to need to embrace that to be able to psychologically persevere, to know that someone is going to mete out that retributive justice. So, overcome, conquer, lament, and lean on God for sustenance and for justice and for vengeance. These are some ways that this ought to apply to us. When we think of what Christ has done for us, is it too much to ask? We sang, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died. When you look there and you see, that's what I deserve. But Jesus bore that for me. Jesus bore the wrath of God in my place so that there is no wrath remaining for me. Jesus bore the retributive justice that I was owed for sins that I have committed against other people. Jesus bore everything I deserved so that God's wrath could be diverted away from me and onto Him. Theological word for that is propitiation. When we think, and he didn't suffer for his own sins because he had none. Here was the innocent man, the only innocent man suffering. A righteous man. Before whom was he righteous? For me. That he could clothe me in his righteousness. That his righteousness could be imputed to me. That God would look at me and say, John's as righteous as Jesus. Clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. When we look at Jesus living, dying, rising for us and for our salvation, in the words of the Catechism, love so amazing, so divine makes it reasonable for me to shirk back from suffering. That's, it, that's how the song goes, isn't it? Love so amazing, so divine, makes it reasonable for me to get weak need and quit, right? That love so amazing, so divine. Boy, I'm struggling with this one today. How's it go? Demands my soul, my life, my all. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. C.T. Studd once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice could be too great for me to make for Him. Look, all Jesus is asking us to do is to hold fast to Him through it all, to be standing after death and Satan and hell have been defeated, to still be standing, to still be holding fast to Him, to fight the good fight between here and there, leaning on Him, 
lamenting in the meantime, this is what he's asking us to do. Love so amazing, so divine, makes that a reasonable request. <laughs>